Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Before I start today's chapter, I'd like to introduce you to something that I became aware of a couple of weeks ago. It's called Intellectual Linear Progression. If you're interested in developing a habit of reading classic books by authors like Homer, Nietzsche, Cicero, Spinoza and more, go to my website www.mythandhistory.co.uk and click on the ILP banner. This will take you to Online Great Books. Online Great Books is designed to help you develop a regular habit of reading the great books. Weekly reading goals, reminders, accountability tools and a dedicated community of fellow readers help keep you on track and on schedule with your reading. The OnlineGreatBooks.com check-in and reading goals system is designed to help you progress through the great books with just three one-hour reading sessions each week. Every month, OnlineGreatBooks.com ships a carefully selected edition of one of the great books directly to your home. It begins with Homer and progresses through works by Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, Shakespeare, etc. through to the moderns. The first book they will ship you is The Iliad by Homer, which of course has played a major part in the Myths and History of Greece and Rome podcast. Each month you'll meet in a two-hour video conference to discuss your text with a small community of readers in a Socratic seminar led by a trained Socratic host. So, now go to www.mythandhistory.co.uk and click on the ILP banner. This will allow you to join the VIP list and receive an executive book summary, a digest of their reading list and more. If you're really interested in developing a lifelong habit of reading and studying the great books, and I really hope you are, then go to www.mythandhistory.co.uk, click on the ILP banner and go to onlinegreatbooks.com. When you get there, enter the promo code MYTH, that's just M-Y-T-H, to get 25% off your first three months. So, on with today's chapter. The Myths and History of Greece and Rome, Chapter 138, Capital, Crusade and Calamity. The Fourth Crusade had begun. It would prove to be the one event that meant that the decline of the once great Roman Empire was terminal. There would be another remarkable revival, but this last rise would not be one that would last. The crusading armies were not led by kings this time. They were led by nobles and bishops, in 1201, a knight by the name of Geoffrey de Villardois arrived in Venice and agreed a deal with Dandolo. The Venetians would supply enough ships for 35,000 men and 4,500 horses and enough food to last nine months. This would be supplied at a cost of 84,000 silver marks. Enrico Dandolo had just agreed some trade deals with Egypt and had no intention of shipping a load of crusaders there, and he never had to. By the time the crusading armies, led by Boniface of Montferrat, met in Venice in 1202, it was clear that far fewer men than expected had turned up. There was also not enough money. The Venetians refused to ship anyone anywhere until they'd been paid. Boniface paid as much as he could from his own treasury, but only about 50,000 silver marks could be scraped together. Dandolo played his cards beautifully. He said he'd accept the 50,000 if the Crusaders would take the city of Zara, which had recently been captured by Hungary, and return it to Venetian control. The Crusaders weren't happy, but they realised they had no choice, and the city was taken. Dandolo was delighted, but the Pope was furious. Crusaders were not supposed to be fighting other Christians. He excommunicated the whole crusade. 
And now, the final event in the chain of events that was to lead to the fall of Constantinople fell into place. Alexius Angelus, son of Isaac, arrived in the Holy Roman Empire, having escaped from prison. There he met Boniface on a brief break from the crusade. Alexius offered to help the crusaders if Boniface would help him depose his uncle and become Basileus. Alexius said he would pay for the crusade to go to Egypt, provide 10,000 soldiers and 500 knights, and would make the Orthodox Church part of the Catholic Church. Boniface recognised that this was a pretty good deal, and he agreed. Enrico Dandolo thought it was a great idea. Here was his chance to have some revenge on the Empire and avoid having to ship the Crusaders to Egypt. It was a double bonus. The Crusaders also thought it was a great idea. It was a chance to unite the churches of Rome and Constantinople. Alexius, of course, thought it was a great idea. It was a chance for him to get rid of his awful uncle and take the throne. Alexius III, back in Constantinople, thought it was a terrible idea and, of course, panicked as soon as he saw the Frankish army and the Venetian ships. Isaac Angelus had led the Imperial Navy into ruin, so the Venetian ships just sailed right up to the sea walls. Alexius III assembled an army to defend the city, but he didn't stick around for long. The Varangians fought hard against the Frankish armies, and it wasn't certain which way the battle would go. Not certain, that is, until the Venetians arrived. The Venetian ships were so close to the land they were able to fight with the defenders. They were, though, not too keen on jumping ashore and getting stuck in. But one man made the difference. He stood tall and proud at the front of his galley and held the flag of St Mark, the symbol of Venice, high above his head. He shouted to his men to drive their ships ashore and fight. As soon as he was close enough, he jumped from his ship to the shore and firmly planted the flag in the ground. At the sight of this, the rest of the Venetians began to fight bravely. They were amazed and ashamed by the courage of this man, particularly since he was over 90 and almost completely blind. Yep, it was Enrico Dandolo. Alexius III, a man with no courage at all, panicked again and ran away to Thrace. He had been one of the worst emperors the empire had ever known, and he had been emperor for eight years. The citizens of Constantinople now realised they were in a terrible situation and had no emperor, so they did the only thing they could think of. They dragged the hopelessly useless Isaac II from his prison and stuck him back on the throne. Isaac was not only incompetent, he was also even more blind than Dandolo, and after eight years in a nasty prison, more than a bit crazy. On the 1st of August 1203, Boniface forced Isaac to crown the younger Alexius as Alexius IV. Then he waited for Alexius to pay up. After all, a deal is a deal. Alexius IV couldn't pay up. Alexius IV couldn't pay because Alexius III had spent all the money. By January 1204, the people of Constantinople had decided that Isaac II and Alexius IV would have to go. By January 1204... Enrico Dandolo had decided that Isaac II and Alexius IV would have to go. What they definitely didn't agree on, though, was who should replace them. It is now that one of the most tragic figures of imperial leadership enters our story. Alexius Mazouflis was a member of the Ducas family, and in better times could have made a very good emperor. Realising that the situation was critical, he burst into the imperial palace and woke Alexius IV, telling him his life was in danger. He pretended to smuggle the emperor out for his own safety, but actually had him thrown back into prison, where his father soon joined him. 
On February the 8th, Alexius IV was strangled and Isaac II supposedly died of shock. It's more likely that he was strangled too. Isaac was 47 years old and had been emperor twice for a total of 10 years. Alexius IV was only 21 and he'd been emperor for just five months. Alexius Mazouflus was crowned as Alexius V. So the people of the empire had got what they wanted, which meant Enrico Dandolo had not, and the people of the empire were no match for the Doge of Venice. Alexius V was an energetic and forceful leader. He immediately did what the Angeli should have done. The walls and towers of Constantinople were strengthened and guards were placed in the right places. The Crusaders, of course, realised this meant there was no chance of getting their money and soldiers for the Crusade. Enrico Dandolo, of course, realised that this was his chance to get what he wanted, so he persuaded the Crusaders to take the city for themselves. Dandolo and the Crusaders agreed that once the city was taken, they would split it up between them, and they'd set up a committee of 12 people to decide who would be the emperor. On the 9th of April, 1204, the attack began. The city was well defended, but there were just too many Venetian ships and too many Frankish soldiers. Eventually, the Venetians managed to get from the masts of their ships into two of the towers and take them. Soon afterwards, the Franks barged through one of the city gates and rushed in. Alexius charged through the streets of the great city trying to rally the defenders, but soon realised that all was lost. He fled to Thrace, where he rather confusingly met up with Alexius III and began to plan a counter-attack. Meanwhile, the Franks and Venetians massacred the people of Constantinople and then set fire to the city. The Crusaders inflicted a savage sack on Constantinople for three days, during which many beautiful and valuable Roman and Greek works of art and literature were stolen or destroyed. The famous bronze horses from the Hippodrome were sent back to stand on St Mark's Basilica in Venice, where they remain to this day. The Library of Constantinople was destroyed. The lid of Justinian's magnificent sarcophagus was cracked open and the tomb robbed of its gold and silver. The Crusaders smashed the city's holy sanctuaries, destroying or stealing all they could lay their hands on. Nothing was spared. It was said the total amount looted from Constantinople was about 900,000 silver marks. Constantinople, the capital of the empire, was in foreign hands for the first time since it had been founded nearly 900 years before. For Enrico Dandolo, it was a victory. For the empire, it was destruction. For the next 57 years, the great capital would be ruled by Latins, while the Greeks tried to regain their strength to take it back. It would take two more remarkable men to realise that dream, leading to the longest-lasting and final dynasty to rule over a once-mighty empire. OK, well, let's just tie up a few loose ends. Alexius V Mazouflus was met with friendship by Alexius III Angelus and was married to Angelus's daughter. Alexius Angelus hadn't changed though and he had his new stepson blinded in 1205. Mazouflus was then captured by the Latins and taken back to Constantinople where he was executed by being thrown off the top of the column of Theodosius. Nobody knows how old he was and he was emperor for about two and a half months. Alexius Angelus spent the next six years stirring up trouble for both the Latins and the Greeks. As with virtually everything else, he was not very good at it. He was captured by both Latins and Greeks during this time and was eventually sent to a monastery in Nicaea by Theodore Lascaris, a man we will meet in the next chapter. He died in 1211, aged 58. 
With his death, the disastrous era of the Angeli came to an end. It was a terrible shame that it had ever started. Constantinople had fallen. The empire had lost its capital. For 900 years it had been impregnable, but now it was gone to the Crusaders. Before we move on, we're just going to have a little recap of how the great city developed. The city had been chosen by Constantine the Great as his new capital for the usual reasons people choose to have property. Location, location, location. Rome was no longer suitable. It was too far away from the frontiers and was prone to disease and flooding. Constantine mapped out the boundaries of the city and then proceeded to fill it with treasures from around the empire, including some stolen from Rome. Greek and Roman art and architecture filled the streets. The city became magnificent in a very short time. Constantine laid out a new square in the middle of Old Byzantium, naming it the Augustium. The new Senate House was housed in a basilica on the east side. On the south side of the Great Square was the Great Palace of the Emperor, with its imposing entrance, the Chalka, and its ceremonial suite, known as the Palace of Daphne. Loaded immediately nearby was the vast Hippodrome, which was used for chariot races and seated over 80,000 spectators. At the entrance to the western end of the Augustium was the Million, a vaulted monument from which distances were measured across the empire. Constantine erected a great column in the middle of the Forum on the second hill, with a statue of himself at the top, crowned with a halo of seven rays and looking towards the rising sun. Christianity flourished under Constantine the Great and became the official religion of the empire under the Emperor Theodosius. This, the last sole ruler of the whole Roman Empire, had a forum built which included a huge statue of himself atop a column. Theodosius' son Arcadius also had a huge forum, named after himself, constructed near the original city walls, the walls of Constantine. Theodosius's grandson, Theodosius II, was on the throne when the magnificent city walls, which were unbreached for over a thousand years, were built. The Theodosian walls are still there in great part in Istanbul today. The Emperor Justinian, in the 6th century, had all the pagan temples in the city dismantled. He ordered the construction of the city's most iconic building, the Hagia Sophia, after riots between the Greens and Blues of the Hippodrome led to the burning down of the original church bearing the name St Sophia. It's estimated that the population of the great city during the reign of Justinian was about half a million. Justinian was known for his successes in war and for his legal reforms, as well as his extensive building programme. It was from Constantinople that his expedition for the reconquest of Africa set sail on the 21st of June, 533. Before their departure, the ship of the commander Belisarius was anchored in front of the imperial palace and the patriarch offered prayers for the success of the enterprise. Constantinople survived and thrived during the hundred years following the death of Justinian, but the rise of Islam threatened its survival. The city was besieged twice by the Arabs, once in a long blockade between 674 and 678, and then in 717 and 718. The development of Greek fire saved the city on this, and a number of subsequent occasions. For the Byzantines, the last of these victories at Constantinople was an epic triumph. They also turned back the tide of Islamic expansion, ensuring the survival of Christianity. They had also inadvertently saved the rest of Europe in the process. Asia Minor became the heartland of the empire, and from this time onwards the Byzantines began a recovery that resulted in the recovery of parts of Greece, Macedonia and Thrace by the year 814. 
By the early years of the 11th century, the Bulgarian Khanate had been utterly destroyed and annexed to the empire. The Slavs and Rus had converted to orthodoxy. Constantinople itself, once the Arab threat had declined, was the leading city in the known world. It survived the iconoclastic period almost unscathed and continued to grow and exercise its influence over the empire and the world during the Macedonian period. During this time, the population of the city was between 500 and 800,000. This was huge. The leading great European cities, centres of empires themselves, London and Paris, did not reach these population levels until the 1800s. The Arab threat to the city was replaced by attacks from Europe in the 9th and 10th centuries as the Bulgars and the Rus challenged the defences. The Theodosian walls and the people of Constantinople withstood all of these encounters and the city did not come close to falling. In the late 11th century, catastrophe struck the Byzantine Empire. The imperial armies, weakened by years of poor management, suffered a surprise defeat at the hand of the Seljuk Turks under Arp Aslam at the Battle of Manzikert. The defeat was catastrophic, as was the poor diplomacy of Romanus IV Diogenes' successors, and before long the Turks were within striking distance of the capital. Under the Komneni, the Byzantine Empire staged a remarkable military, financial and territorial recovery. This is sometimes called the Komnenian Restoration. Alexius, John and Manuel Komnenus stabilised their empire and made Constantinople safe once more. They successfully negotiated the first three crusades and turned the empire into a major regional power for the last time. During the Komnenian Restoration, art, culture and architecture flourished. The Baklernai Palace was built and the capital of the empire became once again fabulously wealthy and the envy of the known world. Then the Angeli threw it all away in less than 20 years. Even when the Latins took Constantinople in 1204 though, the great city still had a population of over 400,000. It was never to be this great again. In the next chapter, we'll see what happens during the nearly 60 years when Constantinople wasn't capital of its own empire. Before I go, just a quick reminder to go to my website www.mythandhistory.co.uk and click on the ILP banner. You really won't be disappointed. OK, have a great couple of weeks and I'll speak to you next time.